Well, welcome back to the Men Podcast. Your host, Joe Roder here, and uh, I'm sitting down with Curtis Frisbee today, uh, director of our hunting and shooting sports at Reds, and also fly fishing guide. He likes to cast and blast. So how you doing, Curtis? Awesome, Joe. Just grateful to, to be part of this team, and uh, you know, I had a first podcast for me, so i got to get the, the jitters out, man. First time caller. All right. <laughs> Yeah, so Curtis, uh, Curtis, give me a rundown on kind of where you where you've been and and how you plop down at Reds, just so our, uh, our listeners can kind of get familiar with your your fishing background, sure, uh, and a little bit on your hunting background. Yeah, so through college, uh, did a lot of fly fishing on the the Truckee River and Pyramid Lake out in in western Nevada, and um, kind of got into big box retail management for about five years and. Um, really wanted to, I, I missed the service industry and the, the, the service side of things. So um, moving back from big box retail management into the service industry is, is m- the most gratifying life move I've personally ever made. And um, it's just an, an amazing experience to be able to get out and help someone accomplish something that they might not have been able to accomplish without your, your guidance. So um, just extremely grateful to be here. Yeah, so you kind of went from... You know, you did some guiding on the Truckee River, yep. and uh, then from being a fly fishing guide, you you were, sounds like you were probably real good at selling stuff. <laughs> so you ended up uh, working uh, for Sportsman's Warehouse. Yep, you got it. And then Cabela's. Moved out to, to Midvale, Utah out there in the, uh, for corporate for them for a little bit as well. And then, uh, like you mentioned, started my career with Cabela's uh, up here in the Pacific Northwest as a, a marketing manager. And... Just extremely grateful for the opportunity to meet a bunch of um, local uh, service industries, such as Red Fly Shop. That's kind of how we got connected through one of the archery shoots. And, uh, you know, just an awesome experience to be able to donate and sponsor to that kind of stuff and, and make these these uh, local connections and ties. Yeah, so now you, uh, safe to say, you uh, nothing against colleagues or other no, managers and, and employees but now you get to work with the customers you got it which is pretty pretty cool so you know not only just because you're here as well but it's an absolute pleasure to be able to work with industry experts and and learn something each day you come to work and it, it makes it a lot easier to get out of bed in the morning i'll tell you that yeah we do some we get to do some pretty cool stuff which is what we're going to chat about today uh but we so curtis uh, came back. You were in Lone Tree, Colorado, and uh, we got you officially on the Reds team uh, in the third week of April, and uh, really brought you in to expand our hunting and shooting sports. But you, your experience in fly fishing for us is invaluable because fly fishing is like that's eighty percent of what we do. Sure. And so anybody who's here on this team is going to be in fly fishing. So. You've been out here, or back out here, you're from the area, uh, not born and raised, but you lived in the area for a good portion of your your career, I'd say, when you were at the local, or our Cabela's here. Uh, but we introduced you to some new fisheries yesterday. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that, uh, that you hadn't been to. So we, we kind of hit the cycle yesterday. We, uh, we did kind of an epic tour of our fisheries, and I know not everybody listening to this really frankly cares about specifically what fisheries we were on but uh we did a spring creek for trophy rainbows i mean lunker rainbows in the morning mm-hmm. and uh wrapped that up we hit the the morning hatch there and then we 
jammed over to do some uh, fishing for largemouth bass midday, and then we wrapped it up at the foot of the Cascade Mountains. On we like to point out we're on the east slopes of the Cascades, high and dry, <laughs> sunny, right at the foot of the mountains here, and a lot more like kind of your southern Idaho type climate. But uh, so then we hit the the edge of the mountains to do some stream fishing last night. So we saw a bunch of, and of course we are driving right by the Yakima River the entire time, big blue ribbon, kind of big blue ribbon western stream. But uh yeah, what did you think of uh the Spring Creek we went to yesterday? It absolutely blew my mind just to get to see a better part of the state over here that I hadn't been to before and um just the fishing uh opportunities that are available for for public access is just completely mind blown after yesterday's trip. I mean, we were sitting there looking at you know, tons of great fish, and I mean, just to be able to experience three different fisheries and and catching fish on three different applications was was another really cool thing that we did yesterday as well. Um, just targeting multi or multiple species um, throughout the day and, and different um, applications was was one of the things that um, I'll never forget, Joe. So, yeah. So the creek we went to, we're so fortunate in this country to have. And I'm looking at your backcountry hunters and anglers hat right now, like literally right in front of me. Keep it public. <laughs> Hashtag keep it public. If you're not a member of backcountry hunters and anglers, look into that because those guys are very vocal in the fight to keep public access and public land in the hands not only of the public, but access for sporting recreation, which mm-hmm. is really key for both hunting and fishing and uh, just preserving that conservation mindset that our public lands and the wildlife that inhabit them are here for our use, enjoyment, and harvest. And sure. uh, those guys at, at BHA really fight for that, for values that I'm extremely well aligned with. Um, so join backcountry hunters and anglers. But the creek we went to uh, is called Rocky Ford uh, Spring Creek. And uh, Rocky Ford is kind of like in local, you know, our kind of the local water cooler conversations about Rocky Ford. If you had 10 dudes sitting there yucking it up, We'll just more appropriately say the bar downstairs um, at Reds. We have a bar in our fly shop, which is super awesome. Uh, but if you were at the bar down at in down downstairs of where we're at now, and there were ten dudes um, or gals, ten anglers, let's say, let's be just <laughs> totally PC, okay? And uh, seven of them are going to be like, oh, Rocky Ford, you know, kind of lukewarm about it. Three of them are going to be, you know, totally stoked about it. Um, Rocky Ford, for some reason, I don't know why, and I think it's honestly an ego thing for anglers. Like, see if I can explain this right. So to paint the picture of Rocky Ford, it's not a wild trout fishery. It can't be because the amount of fishing pressure that's on it. There's no way wild trout would sustain that type of fishing pressure. It's an amazing network of springs that essentially boil out of the ground. And a company, a private company called Trout Lodge, has a hatchery, and they grow just wonderful strains of rainbow trout that they're going to put in lakes and, and stock. I don't even know where they sell all these fish, but basically they, they're in the business of fat, you know, growing rainbow trout. And, um, that's great. A lot of the lakes around here, the trophy put and take lakes, the strains of fish that come out of Rocky Ford, the trout launch hatchery are great. So those springs come out of the hatchery and then they go into this beautiful, a wild, I would say wild spring creek because it's a smooth controlled flow. It's just a spring creek in all sense of the word from the vegetation to the turtles and muskrats and giant trout that are feeding on all that insect life because of that amazing water quality that's controlled, a controlled temperature year round. Now, Trout Lodge is generous enough 
to make sure that that place is adequately stocked with trophy fish. And uh, these trout are very smart. They're not dumb. They're not being fed anything artificial once they're in the creek. They're subsisting on uh, trichos and scuds and leeches and minnows and frogs and anything those big trout can eat. And so those fish are very selective. They're very picky. They're very smart. And because of the fact it's on public land and you can stumble out there and stare at a hundred giant rain, well, way more than that. But from any one point on the bridge yesterday, we could see a half dozen fish that would push five pounds from one spot. It's public water. There's trophy trout. Of course, there's going to be fishing pressure. And God bless it, there should be fishing pressure out there. And that's why out of those seven out of ten anglers, I think it's kind of an ego thing. Like, well, we'd all prefer wild fisheries and wild trout. But the fact is, if we're going to have public water spring creek and we have the opportunity to have these, this, you know, these fish that are in there naturally subsisting that environment, we get to fish for them. What a great game that is. Absolutely. And yeah, I don't, I don't poo on that at all, man. That's really cool because it brings a ton of anglers a lot of enjoyment and that should be, that should be celebrated to me. And so I think it's an awesome destination. Is it the first place I go every time I get a day off? No. But I'm going to fish it a handful of times a year. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to match wits with those big boys. Absolutely. And in, in regards to the ego, you know, the 7 out of 10 anglers that, that might not prefer, prefer something like that, you know, I can I got a, a humbling taste of that yesterday, staring at 20-inch trout and throwing everything in my fly box at them to, to try to get them to, to perform for you. So, um, you know, that's, that's a, a big part of it, too, is actually being able to physically see big fish and then not being able to catch them, you know, on... Uh, after two or three applications, you know, it, it really kind of, we had to find that one special fly in, in our boxes to, to get them to eat. But yeah, you know, lots of fun, man. Yeah, the process makes you a lot stronger. Anymore. So I feel like in some ways, like there's, you know, at least locally, there's kind of a distaste for, you know, hatchery fish or this particular destination in some ways that I, I just think it's, it's kind of sad because if that Spring Creek, and the sad thing to me about that is that if that spring creek was private if it was privately owned and we didn't have access to it uh, there's about two miles and i'm just shooting from the hips somebody can correct me in the comments if there's a stickler about <laughs> geographic <laughs> spatial relationships okay two miles it's public access it's well stocked it's got big fish it's an amazing ecosystem if that were private it'd be 500 bucks a day just to get on that water just to get on it, 500 bucks a day, guaranteed. Those spring creeks on private land are distributed across the country, and they'd have two anglers a day allowed on the creek. And right now, we're able to service the way it's set up and the fact that it's full stock. We're able to service, you know, there might be dozens of anglers out there on a busy Saturday, and there's plenty of trout to go around. Don't let the people, don't let the, the fact that there's a few people out there sharing that common experience with you ruin it. So, we, we did not see, well, we did at the end of the day, but we were out there on an August morning, and we did not see an angler actively fishing while we were fishing. Exactly, yeah, just absolutely blown away by that. <laughs> yeah, so it was quiet this morning, but, um, yeah, so give us a little rundown on, on your first impression. I mean, we go out there, tell me what it looked like. and Sure, yeah, my initial impression was uh, I thought we pulled up to some sort of lake in general, so, I mean, a, a huge still water um, you know, pocket pool above kind of where the, we found some white water and what have you. But, um, you know, it was just an, a beautiful scenario, desert scenario out there in, in Rocky Ford. And, 
Um, one of the unique things that I saw about it, and you know, we touched on on this in the mountain creeks later on in the day, was was getting to see you out there with your your, your two sons and and getting to do some fishing and stuff as well. And um, you know, that's that's one of the cool things about Rocky Ford is you don't need a boat, you don't need all this extra stuff. You know, it's a do it yourself, or you know, if you'd like some guidance and, and what have you, there's resources out there available. But you know, there's nothing better to be able to just get a a fly rod or two and grab a buddy and just go out and cast at trophy fish man there's and for us to be able to do that and uh, it be a public access avenue for us it is just it blew my mind yesterday yeah so and that's such a good point and i that you you pointed out there is it is it's an easy do-it-yourself trip yeah we parked so we we rallied out there it's about an hour east of reds i mean it's super close really it's about an hour east of Reds. We jam out there. We park. There's no waiting allowed inside the creek because it's really so, kind of soft. It's If you've been in Spring Creek before, you'll totally get it. It's kind of a soft bottom. Spring Creeks have a lot of weeds, a lot of weed growth because those weeds grow year-round in the water. So you just you fish from bank side. It's in an open desert environment, so it's got a pretty open back cast. And you just fish from the bank. So we throw on, like, I think you fished in snooks. Yep. Yeah, sure you fish in those, those snook shoes. <laughs> Uh, I just threw on, I just wore my Sims uh, sandals, and it was really easy. We grabbed a hip pack, grabbed a fly rod, went down to the creek, started stocking trout on public land, no boat required, and what an, what an easy trip to be able to just go execute from Absolutely. that standpoint. Yeah, we we got total missile lock on some of those fish. I mean, we were having a great time. Well, we were sitting there drooling, just, just looking at, you know, trophy rainbow trout i mean five feet from you and, and just trying to sit there and, and figure out a, a a way to catch them man it was phenomenal so yeah so we broke out the 6x tippet um <laughs> i uh so we we did we caught fish on nymphs dries and streamers. uh yeah it was streamers little leeches mm-hmm. technically a hail bop leech was the specific name of the pattern that we found worked best but um we got out there, and we definitely found, because of the heat probably, we found more fish condensed to the fast water. We we threw, now typically on a summer morning in years past, that big pool we went to at the beginning mm-hmm. of the day, typically I can throw ants and ter- small terrestrials and little hoppers. Did you see any of those giant black beetles on the bank? Yeah, I sure did. Yeah, so if you get there early in the morning, uh, that sight casting in those big pools to boils, mm-hmm. now they eat pretty well at low light in those big pools, and those fish will cruise. And so it's a little bit like a lake environment, but you can actually see the fish rolling, boiling, pushing a little water, and they'll actually eat terrestrials when their guard's down at low light. And that was our, our goal in the morning. We tried that, and we just weren't successful. Mm-hmm. We migrated to different spot. And uh, I set up, uh, I think I was the only one that got one on a nymph. Yep, that's exactly. Yeah, you stick with the dry a little longer. I sold out. <laughs> Total sellout. Um, but I, uh, well, we were doing a video project yesterday, too, and I felt like I'm like, you know, this is really pretty and everything, but, like, we really need a fish. So um, I did, uh, the setup I used was, uh, that I had success on, was I took a little tiny tuft of New Zealand strike indicator wool, and uh, just a tiny tuft. I'm trying to think of, like, a, an example. More um, just a visual cue for you, right? Just really a visual cue. You're right. We'll get into, your, you know, some some European-style nymphing discussion uh, real quick. I probably need to break that into just a whole other podcast, and you can talk to us about your experience with that. But Sure. Yeah, just a tiny tuft. I mean, way smaller than a dime with no density to it at all. 
just a, just a tiny, tiny tuft. And what I do on that light stuff is I want to be able to see where my nymph's at. I want to see where it's floating. I want that nymph to be suspended because if I cast a nymph out into one of those pools or something, I need that nymph to sit suspended. So it's a versatile, when I have that tuft of wool on there, it's a versatile tool because I can fish it suspended in the pools. Then I can also drift in the currents too. But uh, I just take an, I don't use the New Zealand uh, strike indicator tool kit for those tiny ones. I just take a little tiny overhand knot and put it right in my tippet. I put that tiny tuft of wool in there, pull it tight, and then I might just pluck it or trim it. And it's just going to be a tiny little cue. I mean, it's going to be land so soft. It's going to be like a feather. So if I put it near a fish, one of my favorite setups there is to fish a brassy or uh, some type of small chironomid pupa, anything in the 18 and 20 range. There's such a variety of bugs there that it, I'm not super picky about the fly selection that day. It has so much more to do with presentation. But uh, I just put that tiny tuft of wool in there, and uh, below the... I'll usually tie in a junction knot. So if I go, if I got like a you know, 12 foot leader or 10 foot leader, it really doesn't matter that much. I'll tie on an extra piece of 6X. 6X is kind of my go-to. And I'll put that wool a couple of inches above that tippet knot. Mm-hmm. And that way it's a little bit stronger. It's not, I'm not putting an overhand knot in my terminal tippet. But then I'll about anywhere from 18 inches to two feet below that wool is where I'll tie my nymph. And I used, sure. I'm pretty old school, standard brassy yesterday and uh i hooked several nice fish on that standard brassy uh yesterday morning after we kind of had a real tough start exactly yeah and then you kicked it off with some leech patterns and, and what have you and, and absolutely started to, to tear some fish up man it was a yeah <laughs> well we got out there at daylight didn't we yeah sure did <laughs> and when did we start catching fish you know i i think we we all fished for a good hour before uh <laughs> before uh joe turned one over and and uh, got got the show started. <laughs> yeah, so we got out there, made a huge point. We like kind of you know <laughs> kind of raced down to the creek, you know, because there's usually a morning bite like right at daylight, and that was dead. And then and then it just actually as the morning wore on and it got closer to midday. I think our best fishing was closer to like eleven mm-hmm. uh, out there. But we uh, you got onto them. You and Steve got onto them with that hail bop leech, man, which shocked me because it's. Sometimes you overlook the obvious. We were getting them on that brassy, and uh, we, we decided to tell, tell me about switching over to that leech and the, te- the presentation technique that seemed to work best for that. Yeah, absolutely. That, that leech is a non-beaded leech, and so uh, not a lot of weight to it. So um, what we were doing is just dead drifting that thing, almost like you would under an indicator or what have you, um, kind of through there. And then uh, we, we were really starting to pick fish up. Um, just as you started to swing a little bit. So uh, as soon as it kind of came to life and gave a little wiggle uh, on that swing, that's when fish were, were just absolutely attacking the thing, man. Yeah, it's almost like, and I can tell you, with I found with steelhead this to be true, at least on the rivers that I fish. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not the world's greatest steelhead angler. I'd say I'm pretty good at it. But what I found is when it comes to weighted flies, Creating the illusion that that fly, even on a swung fly on a tight line, creating the illusion that that critter, whatever it might be, um, the steelhead flies I fish don't even really look like much. They might be black, blue, purple, um, very not necessarily natural colors. Uh, unlike the leeches you're fishing, which are imitating a very specific thing, you know, either a small minnow or a leech, I, I suppose. So it's big, two things, but they need to be natural colored. 
but creating the illusion that that is coming out of the substrate. So it's either coming out of the rocks, out of the boulders, or out of the weed growth. And that hailbot leech, when you would dead drift that, would kind of get it down, and they might eat it while it's on the dead drift. But the illusion that that thing is, is kind of slithering up out of the weeds or off the bottom and then coming tight really sells it. And I think there's so much to be learned on a place like Rocky Ford when you can look at a fish and you can present it a couple of different ways and then you see the reaction, the fish decides, you sell it to him, right? Sure. Well, he took on that. You know, whatever whatever presentation I did on that particular fish obviously worked because I got immediate reaction from mm-hmm. the fish at that point. And another cool thing too that I noticed uh, when I was watching you downriver um, and, and you started to pick up more and more fish is... Um, that cast presentation, there was a day and night difference between landing that leech, you know, an inch off the shore rather than four inches off the shore. Um, If we got it right up there on on that that bank line, I mean, it it was almost a strike every time. So Yeah, uh, (laughs) it was pretty good fishing yesterday, and it shocked all of us how good good it fished. And usually when the camera's rolling, uh, there's no fish. (laughs) Um, But the... Yeah, so Rocky Ford went great, and then we ended up uh, getting into that pool, and there was uh, there was a mayfly hatch, and then Steve was really dead set. I mean, we were catching fish on those leeches and doing pretty well, and you and I were like, pretty psyched, right? <laughs> we're not changing a thing. Steve, Steve kept saying, no, let's, we got to get them on a dry fly, and normally I'm all for that. <laughs> we were slain. I mean, we're hitting fish on this, this hailbot leech. And Steve's like, don't cast there, Curtis. And I think he even set a boundary for you at one point. He sure did. Yeah, that whole, uh, if it ain't broke, don't break it type thing. We threw that right out the window, man. Yeah. Just went right to, right, right to some dry flies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> set yeah. the boundary for me. I was right on the, the top of, of where everything was feeding. So I didn't I didn't need to go down river. Yeah, Steve, Steve said, you don't go below that. Don't fish <laughs> over those feeders. So, and, uh, so he went down and uh, long leader... Uh, 6X, uh, Gray Comparadun, uh, or Sparkle Dun. You can, if, if you're not familiar with that pattern, just jump on the Red's, uh, Red's Fly Shop online store and you can search for Comparadun. It starts with a C. Just type in C-O-M-P in the search bar and I'll bet you'll, you'll have a Comparadun pattern pop up so you can see what we're talking about. But that's just a really general Mayfly attractor slash emerger. Mm-hmm. It's not hard to see. It's super easy uh, to fish and see. But... Uh, Steve is throwing. Steve's a really good caster, and uh, he was he was throwing his five weight Sage X, which is interesting because I fish a lot of I fish a lot of lower dollar gear too, especially when I'm guiding. You know, my clients will often use my 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 blue collar stuff. Mm-hmm. I am blue collar, yeah. so it's appropriate that it's called blue collar stuff. But uh, I've got a couple of nicer rods that that are my faves, and uh, I got a couple of nicer rods that are my faves, but. He was throwing that five weight X, and he started dropping. He was dropping that Comberida and just spot on. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you could do it with other rods. This is not I'm not telling you have to have that specific rod to do it. But it, it jumped out of me. I'm like, that's why we love having fine fly rods. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to drop a 40 foot cast on a 24 inch rainbow that's feeding, and I know there's consequence if I have to show the fly to the fish more than two or three times. And, and I miss the lane by 6 inches, 10 inches, 12 inches, or I slap the water, it's probably done. But Steve did a good job of, you know, he hit his, he made his very accurate cast, super soft delivery. And he, man, he probably went like 
four for six on those fish just because he was setting that comparison down just spot on and doing something what we call stick the landing where on these spring creek fish and the missouri river is a really good example and the henry's fork is a good example too for bigger rivers is if you throw it out there and you've got to mend it a whole bunch and fix mend the definition of mend we call our podcast the mend mm-hmm. the mend means to fix or repair if you have to fix or repair your cast with a bunch of mends little comparisons and little stuff like that sink they sink and also by mending, you generally are tightening your line a great deal, and you need those little serpentine S-curves going down your leader to allow that fly to very delicately drift down those complex currents. Sure. So he would, ta- he would take that, that X-rod, high stopping point, parachute cast, drop even slack into the leader, and just made it numerous perfect shots over those fish. That was, I never did throw the dry fly yesterday you you got a couple on the dry as well but sure watching steve work that comparison over those fish was really fun and you know part of that as well joe i had the opportunity um i actually snapped a couple flies off right there as well and um you know i'm not gonna mention a competitor or what have you but i was i was using some lower end gear and uh you know and then i ended up swapping over to that sage x rod for just a few casts and i believe you were doing kind of a little testimonial on it at the time and uh i caught you know two or three fish on that little um on that little done as well and um that sage x rod was just an absolute day and night difference and like you mentioned it's not necessarily um about how far you can throw it or anything like that but i felt like my accuracy um just really skyrocketed when i had that rod in my hand so super consistent and there's two things like so i did this big kind of shootout 200 dollars rod versus 900 dollars rod and Sage X, like, that, that rod's going to be in the conversation, every high-end rod conversation. And we're not trying to sell you Sage X. You can get them at Red's Fly Shop. And we ship <laughs> But the point here is there's two misconceptions that happen in the fly rod industry. One is that how far a rod can cast uh, somehow is represents its overall value. That part's not true. I bump into that a little bit. That's not true for everybody. There's, we're not all dummies out there. But the Sage X is not built to be necessarily a distance rod. Mm-hmm. It is built for all-around fishing performance from 10 feet to 100 feet. It'll do everything in between. It's extremely accurate. It's extremely durable. And it's a very fine casting instrument for those types of situations. The other enormous misconception is that each time a manufacturer, and I'm just going to use Sage. We sell a lot of Sage rods, and we sell a whole bunch of other brands, too. Um, but they happen to, I mean, they lead the market share nationwide for high-end rod sales. So it's natural that we're just using them as an example. But uh, when a rod manufacturer, be it Winston, Sage, Loomis, Berkheimer, Hardy, whoever, when they come out with a new model and their their last year's model or whatever it was is discontinued or no longer available, nobody's suggesting, including Reds, that you're going to go out and you're going to replace all of these three and four or five year old rods with this new model. That's not the inference at all. The inference is, hey, we can make something better now. So anybody now shopping for a particular rod, be it a two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve weight, whatever it is, should consider this model because at this moment in 2017, that's the best rod we can possibly make. And when they learn how to, you know, utilize different materials better and use other materials better, naturally the, the, the engineers and the rod designers are going to go, 
why would we continue making you know this this one from three years ago when now we can build something better? Sure. So nobody's saying you need to run out and replace your you know your Winston B3X or your Sage One with a Sage X immediately. But for anybody who's really wants to make a long term investment and do it right, those high end rods, Sage X just being one of many examples. There's lots of great rods out there, and you can afford it. And you want to make you want to buy it once. Buy once, cry once. You'll have it for 15, 20, 30 years, and it'll you'll still be equally stoked about it then as you are now. That's why we buy those great rods. I mean, I watched Steve put that comparison on those fish each time, and I was like, you know what? That's why we buy rods that we can trust and will give us an advantage. So that to me was like just kind of an epiphany. I go, that's like that's why we do it. You know, that's that's a great example of a real application of a fine casting instrument. And you know, for me, it's not necessarily for uh, you know for for customers that are going to that I'm going to interact with in the future. Um, I yesterday was my first opportunity to cast the Sagex, and I caught a couple nice fish on it as well. And I, I feel like personally, I wouldn't be offering my customers the best possible customer interaction or satisfaction if I didn't have that rod in the conversation because you know it, it's my job to, to offer a good, better, best, and mm-hmm. um, and you know. By all means, there's going to be new casters that couldn't get near the performance out of a rod like that. And so um, it, it might not be the best rod for them. But if you're looking for the best thing out there, I, I experienced it yesterday. It was absolute day and night difference. And every time I do something like, you know, talk up a – and I have gear from – I literally – in the afternoon when we took our sons, you know, we'll talk bass, then we'll talk mountain stream fishing. But Steve and I took our sons. My son's fishing a hundred and fifty dollar Reddington Classic trout. Mm-hmm. He does not need a Sage X. Exactly. Not everybody needs a Sage X. I don't always use that type of rod, but there are certain situations where I want the best possible rod for the job. And I always get some hate mail every time I put something on YouTube or post something about certain, you know, more expensive gear being better. Well, you know why it's more expensive? Because it's better. <laughs> um, I always get some hate mail. Of course, you, I'm not saying you have to have high. Everybody has to have high end gear. One, it's expensive, but it is a lifetime investment. And uh, they're finely engineered casting instruments. And and if if you want to, you know, do it once and buy a rod that you love, uh, you know, certainly entertain the idea of in making a, a wise investment in in a high end rod like that. I just fly fishing very special to me, so I don't mind. You know, saving up and spending a little less on cable TV, sure. and uh, <laughs> I have an old truck and uh, all that kind of stuff. And and but I do want to have nice fly rods. But anyway, on to the next saga of our Odyssey yesterday. So we went and uh, we hit Rocky Ford. You saw it on an awesome day. Super stoked. You're probably heading back out there soon. <laughs> but we also took you to the Bass Lake, man. Sure. Yeah, Hilltop Bass Lake. Uh, first time out there, and. Um, I mean, first off, just the, the the scenery out there, right on the you know the edge of the Columbia River, just uh, absolutely breathtaking. Uh, I don't think there's any other way to describe the view, the the scenario out there, and and to be able to to have an opportunity to ten pound bass or so, you know, is 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 just icing on the cake for me. So, dude, that's <laughs> right. We saw that pot of bass come cruising across the flat. They look like snook, and uh, that lead bass was every bit of ten pounds. I mean, I've never caught a bass that big. I've caught some sevens, and uh, it was a marked difference. Um, we'll talk more about our big fish story in just a minute. But, um, you know, where we're at, we're kind of on the east slope of the Cascades. And then for those that don't, you know, haven't been to Red's Fly Shop or know exactly where we're at, but it's all desert east of us. I mean, it's the driest place on earth, 
at our latitude, just 25 miles from Reds. They get less than four inches of precipitation a year. Uh, I don't know exactly at the Bass Lake because it's up on the plateau a little bit, but I'm guessing that the Bass Lake is maybe six, seven inches of precip per year. I mean, it's a desert, but in that desert, we weren't far from Rocky Ford. We went from this spring creek, this beautiful spring creek, right to this Bass Lake. But part of what makes these, you know, these waterways uh, in eastern Washington where we're at so amazing is the Columbia River's right there. And uh, there's massive amounts of reclamation or irrigation. And uh, the, the agricultural and network and irrigation network out there puts so much water on the agriculture of eastern Washington that we see the benefit from it in places like Hilltop Lake. You know, the Bass Lake we're at is, is definitely inflated due to the Columbia River Reclamation Project. And I don't know about Rocky Ford. I think that's ex- an exception. But there are lots of lakes called seep lakes uh, in eastern Washington because of the massive amount of water that goes on out there. That water drains into these coolies and some of it goes, you know, right into the ground and then it pops up later on in places like Hilltop Lake. But the largemouth bass fishing in eastern Washington near where we're at is, it's awesome. It's a hot spot for largemouth bass within anywhere from 45 minutes to, to two hours of reds. We have excellent bass fishing for both large and smallmouth. Yep, absolutely. And, and like you mentioned, right down south as well, you know, on the, the lower end of the Yakima River, there's some good smallmouth fishing in there. Um, and just the just endless opportunities in this uh, geographic location up here, man, in the Pacific Northwest. It is just absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> and tons of public water. Yep. We were on our private lake yesterday, but within minutes of our private lake, I mean, we've got a little advantage being that it's just limited fishing pressure, but the ecosystems are the same. You know, there's the Potholes Reservoir System, there's Moses Lake, there's the Quincy Lake System, mm-hmm. Sun Lakes, there's... I'm just naming some stuff that the locals might recognize, but there are so many, so much largemouth fishing and warm water fish are so incredibly durable and productive. Like year after year after year, they have these robust populations that we can target as fly fishermen and have great action from any anywhere from a half pound to five pound bass. Great action, public water. You do need to have a boat to go do most of this stuff, but your boat doesn't have to be much. We put our drift boats in there, but there wouldn't wouldn't stop anybody from taking a pontoon boat or a watermaster style boat, a little pram, shoot, any kind of boat, man. You can yep. take a kiddie swimming pool out there to paddle <laughs> and go out there and catch some bass if you needed to. But there's tons of public water out there. And and to me I just there's you know, we took it was kind of a busman's holiday yesterday. We went out just three dudes going well three guides going fishing with the, you know, we had our cameraman in tow and I can't wait to see this video project that we worked on yesterday get done. I don't want to give too much away, but it really highlights how easy it is to go do some of this stuff. And we did it all in one day. But if somebody's out near Reds or Eastern Washington, there's, there's endless public land, public waters and public land to go fish large mouth and, and some small mouth, even in, even in the lakes like potholes, Banks Lake is another big one. Uh, for smallmouth, there's Evergreen Reservoir that's you know within an hour of Reds that has great smallmouth fishing as well. Sure, and and and, and something to add to that, Joe, is uh, for for new people that are just getting into fly fishing as well. You know, bass typically are a little more aggressive uh, species, and um, you know just to go out and get some action on on, on a fly rod is is just I mean, like you mentioned, tons of opportunities right here to to get a fly rod bent, and um, if you're having trouble really getting some some finicky trout and what have you go throw throw a couple poppers at some bass and 
and watch them eat it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we started out throwing. You've got a uh, extensive bass fishing background. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, your dad's a pro bass angler, right? Well, back in the day. Yeah, he's all washed up now. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure you'll love hearing this podcast. <laughs> a podcast? What the hell's a podcast? Yeah. <laughs> Is that where they send the guy to the moon and he goes out the escape chute? <laughs> podcast. Yep. But the um, whole the whole fly rod dimension is is completely foreign to him. I'll tell you that. So he's uh, he's more of the traditional uh, bass fisherman. But um, you know, to be able to apply some fly techniques um, to to some traditional style that I was brought up is is, is something that kind of is is, is going to be fermented in my roots forever. I'll tell you that. So. Oh, dude, <laughs> I uh, no, I grew up doing almost nothing but light line uh, largemouth bass fishing mm-hmm. on light spinning tackle. Yep. It was the closest thing I could get to good fly fishing, you know, where I, I grew up in the South Puget Sound area. We didn't have a lot of fly fishing. Fly fishing really has grown by leaps and bounds. The knowledge base that the internet has given the fly fishermen to, to demonstrate opportunities to us. I mean, dude, I remember going to the library to get fly fishing books. I mean, like, yep. now it's like the, informa- the access to information is so much greater that fly fishing opportunities have presented themselves that didn't exist back then, but... Uh, light spinning tackle and bass fishing is, dude, I love finesse fishing, soft yep. plastics. I've got boxes full of bass fishing stuff. My boys, you saw my my older son fly fish yesterday. He's totally into fly fishing, but his preference at this point is probably light tackle bass fishing. Sure. Um, they attack, you know, and there's a lot of touch and feel and finesse uh, in bass fishing. Um, you know, we, we don't have to talk about tackle bass fishing right now, but... Uh, I grew up doing a lot of that, and I have a real passion for bass because how you move the fly and the speed and depth of which you manipulate it have an almost immediate res- result when the bass are on. Mm-hmm. So if you, so we started fishing poppers yesterday, right? Sure. And I noticed right away, and you were in the camera boat, so you couldn't quite see the cadence of which Steve was stripping and how he was fishing that popper, but. When we first jumped on the lake, we probably didn't get out there till noon, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think noon. Heat of the day, yeah. It was... Heat of the day, worst time of day for August bass fishing. Um, but we still got plenty of action. Um, but when Steve would throw that popper up against the reeds, you know, we always start with poppers when it comes to fly fishing for bass. It's just what we do. If it's if there's any chance of catching on top water, we want top water action. But he would throw that popper against the reeds and. Histori- well, not historically, but often when that popper lands in that tiny shade line against a structure or reeds, the bass will instantly attack it upon impact. Frog jumps in the water, bass eats the frog before another bass eats the frog. It's a very competitive and, and reactionary strike. But that wasn't what was happening for Steve yesterday. I noticed right away that that those bass were following his popper. I could see the bass physically following the popper, which is very exciting, you know, seeing a fish pursue a popper. And then they would attack it on a pretty good to hard strip. Mm-hmm. And so bass are great because if, if Steve got that stripping cadence just right and the sound of that popper just right, we knew it wouldn't be long before he got action. So he still had to place it close to the reeds, but we had to pop it at a certain rate and a certain speed. With the poppers, it becomes very apparent. But what I love about bass is, say we're going to use you know a wet fly. Say we're going to use a crispy critter or a Hogan's crawfish or a, a jawbreaker, one of the many bass flies that we sell at, at Reds. And if 
you want some bass flies, jump online. You can get them at Reds. We got, you know, it's a, so I got to sell something so I want to do this <laughs> podcast, but we're not going to, we're not going to get rich selling you flies, yeah. but, <laughs> but we're going to try. That's right. But, uh, you can get all these different flies, but when it comes to sinking flies, the, the bass will often eat it. If you make a very good cast, the bass often eat it on the drop. So your delivery has to be precise. So where, where your fly lands matters, which can be very different from the river. In the river, for trout, we can cast and we can drift at 10 feet, mend it four times, set it all up, and fix a really poor presentation with mm-hmm. some mends. And that's a mend. It's, we're fixing stuff. And we're going to fix your fishing on this podcast. That's why we call it the Men Podcast. <laughs> so we're going, to, we're going to fix your fishing here. So you deliver the fly for bass. Its point of impact has a profound, uh, a, a profound impact. No pun intended there. The impact of the fly has a profound impact on your results. So if you miss by two feet, no fish. Miss by foot, sometimes no fish. You put it on the spot, and it's clean, and it's sinking that your presentation's already started. And you're sensing, you're really using your sixth sense, right? You're reading the tippet, you're reading the leader, you're watching the leader cut down through the surface of the water, and you're looking for any disturbance in the force. That's what it is, man. <laughs> and that that kind of that ninja sense that you've got when that fly is sinking, and then you take a strip and you move that crayfish along the bottom or midwater column, you're sensing for that bass to take because... Bass don't always crush the fly, right? Mm-hmm. The submer- submerged flies or subsurface fly. A lot of times, it's just all they're doing is inhaling it, right? Yeah, it depends who has the rod, too. I mean, it, it seems like when you or Steve grab the fly rod, those those bass just know and just decide to eat. Well, yeah, we've spent a lot of days not catching anything. Yeah, you didn't see all the days where they're not catching anything. But, yeah, so you're going to strip your fly back, and I love the fact that you know, my my kind of my predatory instincts on how fast to move the fly, how much to let it sink, and how quiet I can be with my rod tip and my line and how I can make that fly slither through the water and the bass is going to perceive it as perhaps a salamander or a minnow or a crayfish or a large leech. I've really got to sell that fly. Bass aren't to- suicidal. They're not totally dumb. They're in their natural environment. And when you get it right, you generally see result. And I just love that about bass. I think that they play very fair in that sense. So I really enjoy fishing largemouth bass. And we used poppers almost exclusively yesterday because we really wanted to get those on the drone footage, the takes on the poppers on the drone. Uh, But the lake, yeah, the lake was just fantastic for midday, I thought, was really good fishing. Yep, and and we can probably attest to this, Joe. I think the biggest thing for, for bass fishing... Um, from our backgrounds and upbringing is is it's a it is literally um, a completely different game when you you catch one on a fly rod uh, to bend a fly rod on a bass I mean you can catch a just go out and catch a two pound bass on a spinning reel and then go catch one on a fly rod and, and you'll never want to pick up the spinning reel again yeah I you know I and I did a lot of bass fishing growing up and yep. I rarely throw spinning tackle yep. anymore uh, my boys love it and uh and anybody listening for young kids, uh, man, let your kids throw spinners. Let them, let them fish. Let them hunt with spinning rods because they can be really independent. And the kids really want to be independent. They don't need dad nagging them about their cast all the mm-hmm. time. And uh, I'm bringing my sons up to. Fl- I want them to love fly fishing. You know, I'd like them to work at Reds and run Reds someday. You know, mm-hmm. and work in the business with us. But um, 
if you nag them about their casting and they get hung up with their back cast and they get tangled a lot, that's not fun for anybody. And mm-hmm. so if you can put them in a, an environment where they can at least be successful, not on catching fish necessarily, but just knowing that they're doing it right. Sure. You know, they can throw spinners, they can throw grubs for crappie <laughs> and bluegill and all that. And then when they get a fish, they got it because of them, not because dad was sitting there bugging them. And that's huge for kids. And they get that, that wave of confidence and like, they're really part of the tribe at that point. To me, that's really critical. And I really tried to make sure to accommodate. I didn't own a spinning rod like three or four years ago. I mean, my kid, I mean, my kids were started going fishing together and I'm like, I got to buy some spinning rods. Should have seen me at the sportsman's warehouse in Missoula buying spinning tackle this year <laughs> on my way through there uh, when we were going on a family vacation. Um, it was hilarious. But uh, no, just setting up your your kids for success. I had the opportunity of, of uh, taking the two little gremlins and riding uh, with me over there. And, and you know, Jensen's one of those younger kids that um, he he does. He's extremely into archery and. Um, loves hunting, loves fishing, and, and what have you. But something that was unique that he mentioned to me is he goes, oh, yeah, I'm not hunting with a bow for a couple of years. My dad, you know, it's three years, and then I'm going to do my archery hunt. Like, you're setting them up for success. And instead of, you know, sending them out there with a bow or uh, the wrong type of rod the first time they go fishing and, and then hanging up in the weeds, you know, 20 times behind them before they can present a, a fly to uh, a fish or what have you just give them a spinning rod get them excited bend a rod and and just you know bring in our youth up that's that's what's really gonna uh promote these sports and and what have you is um that's the future of, uh, of these sports is is these little guys and and getting them in the, introduced the right way is huge man that's it's gonna yeah they they just want to be you know kind of a part of the tribe sure. and i didn't seriously fly fish until uh, I was about 18, I dabbled with it as a teenager. I started when I was 12 or 13, but I, I'm not going to fib you and tell you I was, you know, you know, God's teenage gift of fly casting. I was terrible. God, I remember one of my old college roommates really trying to teach me how to fly cast when I was a freshman in college. And I thought I was a pretty good fly fisherman when I got to college. And then I came to find out I sucked horribly because I'd, I'd done a lot of small stream fishing where I didn't have to cast over 15 feet and I had a good perception of how to reap water and stuff like that, but a uh, different podcast for a different time. We'll talk about that. I used yeah. to suck then, but uh, we did the Bass Lake, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the thing we we had plenty of time to chat yesterday about a lot of the stuff, but just the endless public water, you know, in Eastern Washington where we're at, it's just, it's great. And the thing about bass for everybody listening to this podcast is, I would be willing to bet, short of the, the extreme north latitudes in the United States, um, well, shoot, we're you know, I don't know how many miles to Canada is, but we're pretty high latitude, but we're in the desert. But I think there's bass pretty well distributed throughout all 48 states. So maybe Maine, don't know much about Maine, Minnesota, sure. Uh, <laughs> but there's bass distributed. I mean, within minutes of most people's house houses, there's some type of pond or bass fishery. They're an extremely hardy fish, yeah. They're a hardy fish, uh, and... They're they're a great sport fish. They have consistent populations year to year to year. And uh, I just encourage everybody to try bass fishing. You don't have to go buy a specific rod for it or anything right away, but get yourself some flies, get yourself some you know ten or twelve pound leader, and uh, go give it a shot at one of your local lakes. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at uh, how much enjoyment you can take from that. But, um, so from the bass lake, we were out on the bass lake and we're like, okay, so the kind of the final leg to the video project we're doing is just highlighting these public waters and and the fact that somebody can do these trips without the aid of a guide you know it was like 
you know, bass fishing. It'd be great to go on a guided trip and learn some stuff, but you don't have to have a guide to get started. We went from the Bass Lake to a public land uh, mountain stream, and uh, we went and picked up, Steve and I, I picked up my older son, Jensen. Steve picked up his son, Henry, and uh, we swung through town, and then we just, we bombed up to one of my favorite little streams. I can't give the name away because my friends will skin me alive, my local <laughs> pals, but uh, we went to a really cool local stream, and we only fished, we had about an hour and a half. I mean, these aren't, you know, we're not talking about, you know, the Baton Death March here. We're talking about just jumping out of the car, doing a little fish and catching a few trout and then getting ice cream afterwards if you're with the kids, you know, kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, what did you think of that stream? That's pretty cool, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and kind of like what we touched on before, um, you know, just getting out and, and, and something I challenge all our listeners with is, is really to be process-oriented instead of results-oriented. You know, you get out there and just enjoy your surroundings. Just enjoy crawling over a few logs and, and taking a spill and, and you know, hitting the, the dirt with your kid watching you and, and laughing. The, making those memories, man. That, that's what it's all about, getting out there. And sure, you know, getting a few nice little brook trout and what have you. In the, the meantime, that's just... It's, uh, icing on the cake, as I mentioned. So, dude, you're absolutely <laughs> right about you know hitting the dirt, and that's like these little streams. We teach these fly fishing 301 classes, and when we started that campaign, I mean, quite a few years ago, we really wanted to teach people basic fly casting. We got really good at teaching them the basics in a very specific formula, so that it was fun and they learned fast. And we 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 knocked those out of the park. Those are called our fly fishing 101 class. For those who really want to get it done, they they, t- they piggyback something called Fly Fishing 201 pretty much right on top of it the same day. People who are just sampling the flavor might just go through you know one or the other. But And what was happening was we were getting a ton of fall off where people wouldn't, they, they would learn the skills in, in theory and uh, they would get really excited. And then we were really finding that they weren't really getting across the finish line. They weren't getting out there and wade fishing because, and I, I spent a lot of time reflecting on this. And what it seemed like to me was people's time is so precious, right? We want to make the best use of our day off. We want to make the best use of if we start that car and burn a tank of gas or a half tank of gas or whatever, we want to be make sure that we're utilizing that time successfully. And it seemed like a lot of people just lack the confidence. They would just go, well, I don't know where to park. You know, like that's a reasonable, like I don't know quite where to go. I don't know exactly what fly to use. And most of that we can pretty well eliminate with just, you know, there's you can do some quick online research or, or you know, fly selection. You can get online and order a deadly dozen flies from Reds. There's a really cool little checkout thing um, where you'd say, I'm going to fish the, you know, the, you know, Western U.S. small stream. And, you know, I'm putting the order comments where you're going. And our staff will custom choose flies for you. And I can guarantee every one of those flies is a good choice. They're the ones that we would use. So, Fly selection, there's some tools that we can provide you with to help you. The where to park and where to go is pretty straightforward. Um, there's lots of public waters uh, out there. Uh, in our neck of the woods, we've got probably, I'm going to rattle off a few of them. We've got the Natchez River, the Tyatt River, Rattlesnake Creek, the Little Natchez, the American River, the Bumping River, the Tianaway River, the Upper Cleellum River, the Upper Yakima River, uh, and a variety of different creeks, Menashtash Creek, Tainum Creek, uh, 
those are just in our like our immediate vicinity, and there's more that I didn't name. Uh, Check out the WDFW vehicle access and, and public access passes and, and what have you. There's maps on there that have all of these um, access points, and you know that'd be a great resource for you as well. Yeah, and I think every state agency's pretty pretty well got this anymore. But if you go to Department of Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. I think it's Go Fish. Yep. Their Go Fish resource on their website is amazing. They have put so much work into that, and they totally knocked that out of the park. Most people don't know about that. Mm-hmm. But I think most state agencies, and of course, you can call Reds and ask for some suggestions. Sure. So back to this 301 class thing. We were finding that people weren't really getting across the finish line, and so we, we have these wade fishing classes that we do, and we do them specifically on small streams. So that people can do exactly what you were talking about, about hitting the dirt. You probably watched me fall down yesterday. (laughs) I didn't know you saw that. Uh, So people need to learn how to literally walk in a river. They need to learn how to navigate a river. Do you cast upstream? Do you cast downstream? You know, do I, what do I do when there's brush behind me? Do I stand in the middle of the river and work my way up? Do I stand on the edge of the river and work my way down? All these things are very viable questions and we found that the best environment to learn all that stuff are the small streams so that people can learn how to cross rivers. They can learn uh, all of these reading water techniques are much easier uh, on a smaller scale because the, the, the pools where the fish are hiding are much more evident. Um, those smaller, uh, and we're talking little fish, 6 to 12 inch fish. I mean, we're targeting this as small ball. But those fish are very aggressive because they have a short growing season. The winters in those small streams are harsh. So those fish, it comes to June, you know, May, June, July, August. Our river's open in June, and we fish them through, you know, September. So really their their favorable growing conditions are really like post-runoff, which is June. They've got June, July, August, September, and then October. It starts to get really cold at the foot of the mountains. So you got like three or four months to really grow, and so they're forced to really feed aggressively. The other thing is a lot of those mountainous streams don't have as much insect density as these bigger streams like these tailwaters that we fish. And so the fish are really forced to to prey on those insect contributions that come from outside the creek. Ants, bees, beetles, grasshoppers, terrestrial insects, which makes the dry fly fishing on the small streams really good because it's essential for the fish's uh, survival to eat those things that are falling in the river. So we've got dry fly fishing. We've got an easy river to wade, easy to rewater. We can teach people how to do it. That's in our 301 classes. You can get our website if you're really interested in doing one of those. But the point here is there are lots of these little public waters. And we went and fished an hour and a half last night, you know, not far from not far from my house. Uh, the boys caught fish, had an awesome time. Um, and did you notice at the end of that day that they were they wanted to go fish all those different pools on the way down? I sure did. Yeah, yeah I mean, they were they... so ambitious, and they hadn't caught a whole lot of fish. We weren't there long enough, and we were kind of making them do some video stuff, you know. So we had to kind of rein them in a little bit, and I could tell they were getting antsy. But uh, they did a great job and had a super fun time. But, uh, yeah, they I mean, they, were, they have just sheer unbridled enthusiasm. And their expectations when we remove, like, social media from and I made this Instagram post and I was afraid I was going to get a bunch of hate mail over it but I had this picture of my my son in the brook trout he caught last night which was as pretty a trout as you could ever catch anywhere all of eight inches wobble <laughs> but he was stoked right and 
he's the son of me. I travel all over the world catching just gigantic trophy fish. I mean, I get to live out every angler's dream. I'm so fortunate to get to do that. Yet his expectations uh, and joy has not been thwarted or tainted by what I do. And we see this all the time where people are like, well, they, they're not willing to take the plunge. And when I say take the plunge, I mean get in the car, drive to a spot, drive to the unknown, have some adventure a lot of the time. Because I think there's this, this angst, well, what if it isn't up to snuff? What if it isn't up to par? What if I don't catch as many as I, I kind of hope or I'm dreaming about? And it's like... I feel like a lot of our social media has tainted our expectations. And when I, when I've audited all, I mean, we have years of data, you know, where these, we take these anglers through our beginning classes and we, we, we really genuinely want to see them succeed in fly fishing uh, for two reasons. One, it's the right thing to do. Okay. We need to get more people enjoying our public waters and catch and release fly fishing is, it's not exactly a bottomless resource, but it's pretty close. Because the, the better people get at fly fishing and the more fish they catch, eventually get to the point where now they want to do it on dry flies. Now they want to do it on little dry flies. Now they want to see their kids do it. So guys like me, I don't just go catch as many as I possibly can every time out doing other things. So it's nearly a bottomless resource. The second reason that we want to see people succeed and we want to utilize a lot of these small streams to do it is it's good for business. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that part's kind of a joke, but it really is. We really want to see you guys catch fish because... Um, you can do this, you can succeed, and there's lots of public water, and you don't need a guide to go do it all the time, you know, to get outfitted right, you know, an angler should have, uh, you know, we'll talk, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of break down gear, because this is like prime time, hopefully people listen to this and they get motivated to go enjoy these amazing experiences that we did yesterday, but especially the small streams, because the window on that is going to close by about mid to late September. But let's talk bare bones gear, and then let's talk about, like, if somebody were going to go do a similar trip to what we did yesterday, how they might be prepared. Yeah, absolutely. And just to, to real quick, though, Joe, um, something I noticed yesterday with Jensen is, like I mentioned, you know, he was really excited about um, being process-oriented, you know, making a nice cast. That's what got him excited, not necessarily the take of a fish. And so... Um, one of the, that was super refreshing to see in, in our youth as someone that just wanted to go out and go fishing just to be outdoors and the fish are just the bonus, you know, and, and to watch him really take his attitude through the entire day. I know it was only, you know, two hours or three hours that we were out there total, but, um, his, his attitude was just like you mentioned, just upbeat, just, Hey, hey next cast, let me, let me make a, a nice presentation of the, this spot type thing. Yeah. And I have a saying when I teach all the time. And for those listening, they're like, you know what? I want to get in the car. I want to go do this. You can do it. And I tr- just trust me. If you if you do this and you follow somewhat of a process, you don't have to be a you know world's greatest caster. You don't even have to be a good caster. Mm-hmm. To be quite honest with you, you've just got to get in the car and go do it and have an adventure. But the catching is going to take care of itself. I promise you. You follow the process. You follow a little bit of the coaching. You learn in the basic classes, or maybe a mentor showed you. The catching is going to take care of itself. Don't worry about that. It's going to be fine. Okay. So, but uh, let's talk bare boat. So yeah. we, yeah. So we did. Uh, you fished in Snooks yesterday, which was cracking. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, you don't have to have a lot of gear to go do this stuff. And uh, the bare bones essentials. What does a person need? Just bare bones to go out and fish one of these streams on on the edge of the the Cascades or a stream near near their house, the Rockies or whatever. 
Sure. So I've always been a huge proponent of, of polarized glasses. If you're going to be looking or trying to wade across a small stream, even to, to have that opportunity to be able to see the bottom um, or a fish, you know, coming or uh, running after a fly or what have you, um, is extremely beneficial. But other than polarized glasses, really all you need is a, a some type of rod and reel and uh, some some type of footwear um, with, that you can navigate a little bit with, and then. Um, as far as flies and what have you, a little chest pack with some dry fly floating and a few dry flies for mountain creeks. Um, it's always good to, we do sell the mountain creek assortment kit as well. That, that creek assortment for just about any small creek all over the U.S. that I can personally think of, there's a fly or two in there in that box that are going to work for you. So, um, you know, just having a, a few flies, um, a little bit of floating, a chest pack and, um, the, those couple other things we mentioned, man, that's, that's, I don't really see anything else that you'd absolutely have to have to go fish a mountain creek, Joe. No, you're, you pretty much nailed it. So we got, let's go through this kind of orderly. We got polarized glasses, not just for seeing the fish, but for seeing the bottom, which exactly. is really important. I, I mean, I know it for reading water, but I'm like, yeah, hiking around is a lot easier. You got polarized sunglasses. Um, you've got some floating. I had to borrow yours because I left mine. <laughs> I got it in my pocket still here. <laughs> um, so you got to have some float, and that's going to waterproof your fly and make it float. you got to have a rod and a reel. Um, you know, if you're looking for rods and reels still, and you're going to go small stream, you know, go play small ball. Think two or three weight. Mm-hmm. I like a Reddington butter stick, the two weight classic trout. I also use a Tenkara rod made by Temple Fork Outfitters that's got no reel. That's my personal favorite for that little stuff. People kind of freak out when they're like, there's no reel on it. Um, different podcasts for different time. But I use a Redding and Butter Stick, 7-foot 3-weight, a 7.5-foot 2-weight, and a Temple Fork Outfitters Tenkara. Those are examples of, of a, a fly rod very appropriate for that. But you just need a fly rod with a floating line. Uh, probably need some nippers, something to cut your line with. Yep, great call. If somebody was super cheap, they could use fingernail clippers. I hate seeing that because it's a gigantic waste of time and your time is precious. So get some kind of nippers. A hemostat or some type of plier that can pinch a barb. I think that's just a safety deal, even if it's not required. I think it's just wise. You can wind up with a hook in the hand when you're hiking through bushes or brush and things like that. So hemostats, nippers, floating. Uh, rod and reel, polarized sunglasses, and you're pretty much there at that point. Like you could go fishing and put together a trip. You could wear your old, you know, Air Jordans in the water, your lawn mowing shoes mm-hmm. if you had to. It'd be a little slippery, but little tippet and flies and and what have you, and then you're set. Yeah, yeah, some kind of leader, but you know, you can get by with a very bare bones minimum of stuff. Now, on to the well prepared angler. We want to be comfortable. So that we fish a long time and discover new water and we can hike and cover water fast enough that we can really get the most out of the trip. So now we've, we've discovered that we like this with the bare bone stuff. Mm-hmm. Now we're trying to get the most out of the trip. We covered rods. What else are we doing? How did you like those boots yesterday, by the way, that I loaned you? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and as far as manufacturers, we, we do carry quite a bit of Sims uh, product here. And uh, they were a, a set of Sims wading boots and um, I actually forgot my Sims waiting boots, and so Joe let me uh, borrow the same exact ones. And so you uh, hadn't worn those before, had you? No, I hadn't worn yours. So, but uh, the, that's a Sims Intruder waiting boot. Yep. So it's specifically for wet waiting. Mm-hmm. So that that neoprene gasket that went around your ankle 
Probably kept the rocks the out. Gravel guard, yeah. It's got a built-in gravel guard on there, so yeah. And it's a slim boot, so that it actually fits right over a bare foot. You wore socks with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great. I don't need your athlete's foot. <laughs> um, but it's got that gravel guard built in. But it's a wet weighting boot, so it's really sleek and it drains fast. So you step out of the water, and, and a traditional wading boot could work fine. And we'll talk about how to use your your normal wading boot in a wet weighting environment here in a moment, but. Uh, they don't hold much water. Exactly. They, yeah. And they're slim. So there's not a big water space. You're not like, you don't have a big water balloon around your foot this, the first few strides out of the creek. Yep. They drain quick. So And it's a closed toe shoe as well. Uh, having that full protection uh, is, is important for me, especially on some small mountain creeks and what have you, because you're constantly dealing with climbing over brush and, and uh, you know, hiking through gosh the stinging nettle stuff and and all that so uh, you're definitely going to want some closed toes now you're making it sound not very much fun Um, yeah so but the 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 footwear is is really important because if you don't have somewhat comfortable feet you can't get the most out of the trip Mm -hmm. and i want to see people be able to you know move be agile enough and move well enough when i'm when i'm guiding wade fishing i can just I can testify that when people can move better in and out of the river, we can go we can go a little further. We can cover a little bit more water. It's not a, an essential requisite, but if you want to get the most out of the trip, you're going to have some type of good footwear. Sims Intruder Wading Boots are really the best product specifically for that. Uh, if you're going to use your, your traditional wading boot that goes over your waders, that can work too. What might a guy do if he's just got a set of boots he normally wears over his waders? Yeah, you can. So just wear your neoprene wading socks with a, um, a set of gravel guards, and you can just throw your waders or your wading boots right on. Um, and that's 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 typically how I use my setup. Is um, they're designed to, with a, a gravel guard on my built into my Sims waders, and um, they go right over the top. So if I'm just going to have my wading boots, um, I have a pair of removable gravel guards that I throw on and um, just hike around. Yeah. Now Steve yesterday, uh, and I've done this too before but where why and where he did it was genius so he took his gravel guards you know they're not the sock mm-hmm. but he just he took his quick dry he was wearing like quick dry pants exactly. and he wore those gravel guards like gators he wore them up higher and it protected the bottom of his pants they didn't get muddy and nasty and tear up the bottoms of his pants which i thought was good but um yeah neoprene sock is the most comfortable inside your wading boot that you might normally wear over your waders and you just crank the laces down tight they're going to be a little bit sloppy and a little bit big but it's going to provide great traction and you can wear felt you know here where we're at felt versus rubber uh that intruder wading boot is so great because it's got felt on the bottom but then like the the edge of the boot um is rubber so you get that traction for like side healing and stuff you get rubber on the edge and then felt on the bottom so you get inner traction there and then if you're hiking on anything a steep side hill that rubber really cuts into the hill and then a guy could wear, um, you know, you could wear keen sandals or you could wear like a Sims, you know, wading sandal. You know, Sims is, you know, the leading footwear company in fly fishing, at least for the wet wading into things. So there's a couple of different Sims options there. But you could certainly wear old sneakers. Nobody's going to stop mm-hmm. you from doing that. But to be comfortable and get the best traction you can so that you can cover more water and be effective, a good solid boot is uh, a way to go. And then I was in a class uh, um just last Sunday, Sunday before this last one. No, it was this last Sunday. And I did a class where I took three anglers on one of these 301 classes and we did a wade fishing adventure. And uh, I knew it was going to be really bouldery where I wanted to take these guys. And uh, I gave them, I gave two of the guys wading staffs. 
I had one Sims waiting staff, and then I had one uh, really old old one. And uh, man, I gave the guys waiting staffs, and they were both agile dudes. Maybe they're listening to the podcast. It was uh, Jeff and his son Ryan, and I gave them those waiting staffs for just a couple of the tough crosses. And their rate of travel went up, and these guys are in good shape. But their rate of travel went up like thirty or forty percent. I mean, not quite twice as fast, but it was debatable. Like they could cross so much quicker with the waiting staff. Uh, a trekking pole can work. I know that uh, if I'm doing any backcountry stuff, or I'm doing any mountaineering, or you know, hunting extreme country, I throw a trekking pole in because I want that third point of contact. Not because I'm you know disabled or got any bum knees, is because I can move faster with the third mm-hmm. point of contact. So. Waiting staff is um, adds mobility, and then uh, probably some type of pack, right? Sure, yeah, a, a nice chest pack, something that's uh, kind of streamlined and, and not real bulky. Um, typically, on a lot of those mountain streams, we're dealing with a lot of foliage and stuff around, and so the more bulk you have on you, um, the 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 less ideal it is. Um, and especially with a lot of foliage and stuff around, typically you get some mosquitoes and a lot of those bugs out. And so, you know, a solar flex bug stopper, um, shirt of some sort is, is just going to make your experience in the, the, the woods or in the, the mountains a hundred times better. Yeah, that's um, a good point. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So what you're saying on the packs is backpacks, uh, if you're going to be ducking under a lot of logs and stuff, backpacks mm-hmm. can be a little obtrusive for these smaller streams, bigger river where you're going to hike a long ways. A backpack makes sense. Uh, I'm really loving a sling pack, um, because I can rotate it around to my front and kind of, kind of wear it on my belly when I need to get some stuff out of there. And then I can just slide it around my side. It's kind of a man purse cause it's got one strap. My kids think it's hilarious, but we all had our man purses on yesterday. So. <laughs> um, hip packs are great. Sling packs are fine. I like, uh, if you can get a waterproof one, they're a little bit more expensive. If you're going to put your phone or, you know, a key fob or anything in there, you want to protect it. Just at least consider waterproof, but, uh, quick dry pants, um, long pants are good. Uh, you can get away with shorts. Of course, depends on your tolerance. Then long, I generally, I'm going long pants, long sleeves, mm-hmm. um, all the time. And then uh, we don't got to get into the two nitty gritty, but if you really want to have a good rewarding time, you know, having a, you know, packing appropriate things like plenty of water, you know, snacks, food, first aid kit so that, you know, you get scraped up a little bit or something. Uh, You got band-aids and that kind of little stuff that you might not really think about. It's not really like a safety issue so much as it's a comfort issue uh, that everybody's still having fun. You know, somebody falls down, skins, skins their arm or something, um, you know, a little first aid kit for something like that. And some, uh, you know, the mosquitoes weren't terrible, terrible yesterday, but some bug spray is always good to have and mm-hmm. just leave in that pack. But we can get into like pack contents on a different podcast, but we finished off our day yesterday, uh, on that small Creek and man, it's just, we're so fortunate in the United States to just have all this great public land and just equipping people with the knowledge to go take advantage of that is just, that's a big part of our job because it's the right thing to do. And uh, we want to see people get out there and enjoy the great outdoors and these resources that we have. And frankly, the mountain streams, I don't care what anybody says, they are way underfished. Mm-hmm. Some of them are teeming with trout. Those trout aren't going to get any bigger because they're well-populated. Um, I won't use the term overpopulated, but uh, they're well-populated. And there's plenty of opportunity for anglers to go take advantage of that resource, especially because most of them were just catching or at least fishing anyways. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, so anything to add to, to any of that, Curtis? 
You know, just a, one of the original messages is, you know, we have all these great resources out there as far as public lands. And um, I, I personally really encourage everybody listening today to, to get involved and, and, you know, do, do, do our part. And so, you know, whether we're out in the uh, in fishing and it's just picking up trash or, or what have you, leaving it better than, than how you found it is, uh, you know, what, what we're really going to be able to pass this, these great things on to the, the youth and the next generation. So um, get involved and, and do everything we can to, to protect these fish and take care of them. So, Yeah, and take somebody fishing would you so there's lots of opportunity out there hey thanks for listening to the men podcast leave us a review uh any questions you have or feedback just put it in the comments uh and uh you can visit us at redsflyshop.com to pick up any of the gear that we chatted about today